0: Live from Red Bull Studios, New York. Now pop no style, I strictly roots. No pop no style, I strictly roots. See me on the road and you're not to me. See me in the
1: pants and See me in my, my back. See me gear
2: We're now tuning into the Top Rank podcast. We're back. This is Isabel.
1: And this is Marcel. So, you know, as we brace ourselves for what is to come and what has already been happening with um, the Trump administration, we find it really critical to come together and develop strategies for building stronger, more nurturing, and more politically resistant communities. Um, you know, the urgency has always been there, but I think now with the situation that we're in, the urgency is ever the more relevant, especially as it relates to women's issues um, such as reproductive rights. You know, as we all know, the abortion issue and reproductive rights issues have always been about much more than the life of a fetus. Um, you know, the abortion issue is really a complex political symbol. Um, through which social conflicts about gender, race, sexuality, morality, as well as politics and economics continue to play out.
2: As women, we are really used to combating basically every kind of hurdle when it comes to protecting our health and well-being. However, the reality of a vehemently anti-choice Trump cabinet and a Republican House and Senate as well as the ongoing obsession with restricting women's access to health care and contraception, has come to a very violent head, with the defunding of Planned Parenthood being at the center of this battle. On January 24th, just a few weeks ago, the House passed a bill that proposed the permanent elimination of federal funding for abortion. This vote was cast within days of the 44th anniversary of Roe v. Wade.
1: So for this episode, we're really imagining um, uh, this to be kind of a post-inauguration reflection and recalibration, and really a space to kind of start brainstorming strategies on what next steps we can take to, to protect ourselves and strengthen ourselves and our communities. So defunding Planned Parenthood from government aid would essentially mean that the services they provide would no longer be eligible for Medicaid reimbursement. So for many of Planned Parenthood's low-income patients who use Medicaid to access uh, the agency's medical services, which which vary, they go beyond just reproductive health services. But essentially defunding Planned Parenthood would mean that these women would lose access to their primary health care provider. Um, this flagrant disregard for the health care of women especially for Planned Parenthood's um, low-income patients, many of whom are women of color, continues in what we've seen to be um, an unfortunate but longstanding tradition of violence that is inflicted upon this country's most
2: marginalized groups. Today, we have brought together several women who have been at the front lines of working to secure re- reproductive rights for women at a national and global level, and together, we want to talk about what we can do in the days and in the years ahead to uphold the progress that has been made and to determine finite strategies that we can implement immediately and now. So first, we'd like to introduce our two guests who are here with us today at Red Bull Studios in New York. Thank you, Red Bull as well.
1: Yeah, we're super excited and super honored to have both of these stellar, amazing women with us today. So I'd like to introduce everyone to Elani Paredes, who is a second-year student at Barnard College. As a reproductive justice advocate, Alani has worked with the New York City Council to advocate for sexual health education and racial justice. She's had a variety of different awards and accomplishments through the years, but we'll just highlight a couple today. Um, In 2014, she was awarded an Ann Power Fellowship by Ann Taylor, which granted her funds to start her own community reproductive justice project called Ignited Voices. She's also, um, she also serves as one of Planned Parenthood's 2016 Global Youth Advocacy Fellows. In addition to all these amazing things that she's up to, Alani is also the Director of Operations at One Girl New York, a nonprofit aimed at supporting women to be socially conscious change agents. So pleased to have you with us,
0: Thank Alani. you. I'm happy to be here.
2: We also have Lori Edelman, who is a writer and advocate focusing on race, gender, and sexual and reproductive rights. She's the editor of the news site Feministing and an associate director at Planned Parenthood Global and has previously worked at the United Nations Foundation, the International Women's Health Coalition, and the Human Rights Watch. She has spoken on the radio, on TV, and at college campuses all over the country about politics, culture, advocacy, and activism.
1: So yeah. Welcome, guys. Yeah, welcome. Um, Super excited to have both of you here to talk about what we all know are very critical issues. I guess we wanted to start out by uh, kind of taking a step back and talking more about the realities of what defunding Planned Parenthood would involve. Um, I kind of touched on it obviously very broadly, but from both a national and global perspective, we'd love to hear um, more information about what's really at stake here.
3: Yeah, well, I I can jump in. I mean, first of all, thank you so much for having me here. It's amazing to just have the opportunity to speak with people who actually are already really informed and want to know more. Um, That's really great. And I think you really hit the nail on the head when you were um, introducing this whole conversation and framing it because you said already, you know, Planned Parenthood is just one piece of this larger puzzle, this larger conversation that's happening nationally around race, gender, bodily autonomy, uh, women's rights. And so, you know, I think what's really important for people to understand is that in a lot of ways, Planned Parenthood is, you know, kind of a symbol that got wrapped up in these bigger conversations. But of course, to Planned Parenthood patients, there's nothing symbolic about their access to care. Um, and you know, I always tell people, I'm um, like, no matter how passionately you feel about a certain issue or how strongly you fall along political lines when it comes to sexual and reproductive health and rights, you have to remember, at the end of the day, patients aren't coming to Planned Parenthood to make a political statement. Sometimes they have a political belief and that lines up with them being able to have access to care. But at the end of the day, they're walking through that door to take care of themselves, to get healthy, to get right. And, you know, that's that is their right. And I think one thing that a lot of people really don't understand when it comes to this term, defunding Planned Parenthood, is that we are not a line item in the federal budget. There's no amount of money that's set aside that Donald Trump then signs off on and says, "Okay, we're getting, you know, $10 million Planned Parenthood, and then now that's on the chopping block. No, we already do not receive direct federal funding. That's already off the table. And as a matter of fact, federal funding for abortion writ large is already whether you like it or not, off the table. There's already laws that prevent federal funds from going towards abortion access in this country. I personally feel that that should not be the case, and we actually should be fighting to have that law repealed, but maybe now's not the perfect political (laughs) time for that. Mm -hmm. But that's already all on the table. So this term, Planned Parenthood, getting defunded, is actually not about taking money away from Planned Parenthood from a budget. It's actually about poor, low-income, black, often black and brown women who choose to go to Planned Parenthood and have Medicaid as their insurance coverage and for Planned Parenthood to be able to offer them the services that these women are coming into our doors for and get reimbursed just like any other healthcare provider. So it's actually singling out Planned Parenthood as uniquely ineligible for funding when actually we are one of the leading, most consistently top-rated highest quality and most popular and trusted healthcare providers in the country in any field of healthcare. Um, so that's what's really problematic about, I think, a lo- the ways that mainstream media has framed this conversation writ large. And something I find to be really frustrating, you know, I always tell people, instead of saying defund Planned Parenthood, you should just substitute in the actual term and say defund black and brown poor women, because that's actually what's being proposed. And that's what we're debating right now.
0: Yeah, thank you, Lauren. You said it perfectly. Um, And in addition to that, so you have millions of people who are losing access to health care. And so it's not a political statement that they're making, and it's not right this is where the political becomes personal um and in addition so on a global um aspect we're talking about international Planned parenthood federation um does receive funding um and so we're talking about not only are the women in the u.s affected but women um, and people around the world are being affected by this Um, many um, ngos and health centers around the world receive funding from the u.s so this means that people don't have access to family planning so not only just abortion, Um, but family planning, um, consulting for um, HIV, AIDS, Zika. And so honestly, these are people's lives that are on the line. Um, And as we saw, Trump reinstated the global gag rule, which states that um, any NGO or any um, nonprofit globally that receives U.S. funding for um, their health services cannot offer um, any advice or consulting about abortion. And in in addition to not talking about abortion, not being able to talk about um, health services or family planning for Zika virus and HIV AIDS in addition to that. And many of these health centers are going to have to close down because of that. And now we're risking the lives of millions of women and people around the world.
3: I think what's really important about what you just said is, again, how much misconception there is in America about what that policy actually does. Mm-hmm. Um, because a lot of people I talk to, again, the same way in the United States, they think about defunding Planned Parenthood as just, oh, okay, you know what? It's controversial. Abortion's controversial. It's fine if we just. Don't send any federal money to that. They'll find another way. And we know that's not how it works. The same thing applies globally, where I think people think, oh, well, why should we be paying for abortions overseas? You know what? We already don't use U.S. money to pay for abortion overseas. There's already a law around that. So what is this actually doing? What is this actually saying? This is saying that the most vulnerable people around the world who are recipients of... um, of support from charities, from HIV AIDS, health organizations, you know, who are all working on all these different programs, they're going to be turned away or their local health center is going to be closed down. And I just want to get a poll from the people in this room. Like how much of the U.S. budget would you say goes to global health programs annually? Like what, what would you guess if we were just like, okay, you know,
2: Oh my gosh, I have no Just gauge. like uh, a, minisc- a minuscule amount.
3: Would you say it's over uh, 5% of the of the U.S. budget? I Goes would guess
2: between health. 3 and
3: 5. Okay. It's a good guess. Same. Same. Same, I was same, yeah. So a lot of people guess over 10%, and it's actually mm. less than 1%. Mm-hmm. So we're talking oh. about something that is such a small part of the U.S. budget, But it means so much. The U.S. is, to this day, the largest funder of family planning worldwide. And Donald Trump didn't just reinstate the global gag rule. He expanded it beyond what even any former Republican president has ever done. Even George Bush, when he... Uh, reinstated the global gag rule, made it clear that HIV-AIDS programs should be exempt from this policy, and Donald Trump explicitly kept them to be part of it. So what we're talking about is a jump from maybe about, talking about maybe $600 million worth of funding to over $9 billion worth of funding that is um, now getting under threat and possibly on the chopping block, unless all of these groups submit to Donald Trump's vision of what they should be doing and what's best for their communities.
2: That actually, I mean, that you guys actually just segued perfectly into our next question because I was going to ask you to briefly describe the the Mexico City policy, which you have done, and also just the implication, the immediate implications of what will happen, and if if you would care to touch on it, um, the relationship also with the Helms Amendment and how these things kind of overlap and tie into each other. Um, I know that Obama had actually felt had experienced pressure to deal with helms and did not but i mean how do you what do you guys think is going to happen really moving forward it's sort of like immediate repercussions of all of these things i mean i feel like you're asking a
3: policy wonk you're just giving me permission to like go. yes please go in, go out in. a little go in. bit Off. yeah so <laughs> this question's a little bit dangerous so just stop me um if we go too far down the rabbit hole. But, you know, I I previously, I just referenced um, a policy that already forbids U.S. uh, foreign assistance funds from going towards abortion overseas. So I was referencing Helms. What the text of that policy actually says is that no U.S. foreign assistance should go towards abortion as a method of family planning, okay? That's been on the books since the 70s. Jesse Helms, fuck that guy. He was this (laughs) uber-conservative lawmaker who um, both... You know in domestic policy and foreign policy really screwed over a lot of women was you know staunchly extremist and anti-abortion and all these things so helms is one of his um legacies that he has left us and that's how old this policy actually is and we still have not been able to get it off the books mm-hmm. um so under president obama the ask from um you know plan parenthood global and and different allies and groups was to say okay you have this law in the books that technically says that we shouldn't be funding abortion as a method of family planning. But we know that people need access to abortion for all kinds of reasons and that using abortion as a method of family planning really isn't at the forefront of most people's minds. And if you ask them and you talk to them, there are a lot of different reasons that they might need access to this um, health care. So why don't we without needing a change in the law as it's written, without needing to go in front of a court, simply choose to reinterpret this policy. You're supposedly a pro-woman, pro-choice president with a pro-woman, pro-choice administration. All we need you to do is say the word. That's all we were asking for. For eight years, we asked for that. To no avail. For some reason, um, that was not something where we could build up enough political pressure to make it happen, and I think, you know, even now in the time of Trump people are are looking back and seeing in some ways we are in a markedly different era and obviously we're in a very you know problematic time in other ways, there is a continuation of policies that were started under the Obama administration. Look at immigration raids. We saw those as well under President Obama. And I'm not saying that it's of the same scale, and, and I'm not saying that the rhetoric is the same, but you also have to look at the action. And so President Obama did not choose to reinterpret Helms. Both Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton said on the campaign trail that they would. Obviously, that's all moot at this point. So, um, so that law already prevents federal funding from going to abortion. The global gag rule goes further because it actually gags, it literally gags anyone who takes $1 of U.S. funds. So you could be working in a country on HIV AIDS prevention and you could say, okay, well, I receive $1 of U.S. funds. Abortion is legal in my country. I don't even provide abortion services. And I like to have a pamphlet in my waiting room to give people options about so that they know if they're pregnant what their full range of act of options are. I'm gonna be completely ineligible to do my entire HIV AIDS, you know, setup no matter no matter what the circumstances are. That's crazy. And you know, you're limiting free speech, you're interfering between the relationship between a doctor and their patient. And it's just another example of the US like throwing its big dick around, sorry, um, and saying you know what? We got rich off the backs of exploited people around the world. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to use our relative wealth to force you to follow values that not even people in our own country ascribe to or support.
1: I have a question. How are the how is the gag actually enforced? Like, is there kind of like surveillance that goes on in these
3: organizations? Like, well, how is it? There's a good, that's a good question. And the the real answer is that we're not exactly sure how this most recent. Gag rule will be enforced because it is so expanded and it's so unprecedented. We've never seen an order that applies to this large amount of of funding. Um, But in the past, groups have been asked to sign a statement that says, "Okay, we will not partake in any of these different activities," and then based on them signing that statement, they'll either continue to be eligible for funding or not. I think what's really interesting and important about the global Gaggle, and then seriously, we can talk about something else because um, I know we could talk, we can talk about this for a long time, but um, what's interesting about it is that it doesn't actually have to be in effect. It's one of those things like it has a chilling effect um, on, on the entire world because the U.S. is really like I said, we're the largest donor, we're perceived as a leader um, in all these different spaces. So when we say something is bad or wrong or shameful, and we stigmatize it, you don't have to actually pull the money out. You don't have to actually force somebody to sign something for the message to get out around the world. Well, you know, this global leader is against this, this thing must be bad. Or you know what, in four years, this could change or it could not change. But we don't want to become on the on the U.S. hit list, so we'll just stay away from this topic altogether. And I think it's the stigma that really ends up like hurting and killing women because that's when you're so ashamed you can't even ter- you know turn to your friend or your neighbor or your family um, and express what you need. And that's when you end up taking matters into your own hands or you know pursuing an unsafe or clandestine abortion. And we know um, that thousands of women per year die from that, and that's completely preventable. That's something that you don't have to pull funding from in order to, you know, inspire this terrible and, you know, painful death. Hmm. <sighs> I
0: don't want to get to add to that. Yeah, um, on the policy side, um, you definitely, you got that, Lori. Um, that was really great. But the thing I kept thinking about was really um, the support or, like, the lack of support actually towards, like, ending these things or vocalizing, like, how against these policies um the population is like and for me it's like you see that now because people are fearful and now people are willing to say something but it's a little too late um and of course we can continue fighting and it's not obviously never gonna end but for me it's like well we should have been doing this a long time ago like now that you're fearful of this um now you want to act but and of course it proves like people when they're fearful like will come out and and you know voice their opinions but um we really need to be loud and we really need to gain support for um against these policies and show that we won't stand for this because if we're complacent about these policies if we're complacent about the lives of people um then what we're risking like people's lives and i don't think that's really registering in people's minds um especially for people who are privileged enough to not have to rely on um, an organization like Planned Parenthood. Um, Beyond low-income women, also people who are undocumented, um, trans folks, GNC, gender non-conforming folks, you know, so who rely on Planned Parenthood and organizations like Planned Parenthood. um, If you don't have to think about it out of mind, it's something that's not urgent to you. Um, And now I know that the Women's March just happened, um, but now where we see that reproductive rights um are on the line we see more people coming out but these issues were being talked about way before so like where were you then yeah
1: yeah actually that's a perfect segue to another question that i wanted to ask you all you know is about action and particularly the marches um, I know, Laura, you wrote a really interesting piece in The Times about oh, that was awesome. marches and identity politics that I'd love to hear um, more about. But, yeah, thinking about, you know, the marches happening across the country this weekend. I know there are a lot of actions. We have a Planned Parenthood going on. Um, but, you know, we've been seeing both in the United States and across the world this historical display of political solidarity through protest um, and for women's equality, for reproductive justice um you know there've been a variety of different kinds of responses and reactions to the marches especially to the women's march um which have illuminated you know kind of the performative aspect of politics uh, of of performance and the the potential of that but also the the tensions whether it be race tensions class tensions gender identity um and expression tensions that I, really remain critical fault lines in the what you could call like the mainstream, like white feminist agenda. Um, So we were curious to hear your impressions on marches as a political tool in general. Um, What do you think that, you know, these kinds of actions accomplish? What's the potential to make change through these actions and ultimately how can we kind of use the collective spirit of these marches. I do think that they they do accomplish something really important in the sense of gathering people um, with a common sense of morale that I think at times like these are really important to build community but we'd love to hear from you both about you know thoughts on thoughts on the marches what's the potential and and how can we use how can we use this action and um, actions beyond this as as um, rallying
3: cries. Just that. That's the only question.
1: <laughs> Just that. A, part A. And okay. there's part sub point okay.
3: a. Um, I have a lot of thoughts and feelings mm-hmm. about the Women's March, some of which I did write about in the New York Times. And what was so funny about that is, um, you know, I wrote about how um, I was really happy to see that despite some issues in the beginning they did end up bringing on a lot of professional organizers and women of color to co-lead the women's march at least the dc one and the ways in which you know that kind of represented um the direction that we should go moving forward and that you know the pushback that we were seeing on that around specifically white women calling a focus on women of color divisive for for this particular moment in time um why that that needed to be you know, kind of really scrutinized and looked at because we we actually need to center uh, women of color if we're going to make any progress in these issues. And so, you know, I got a lot of hate mail um, from, from disgruntled white people, which I'm used to. <laughs> um, but I think what was really interesting about that is um, my friend Angela Peoples had attended the Women's March in D.C. and um, she went there holding a sign that said, don't forget white women voted for Trump. And this image of her holding the sign with like three white women behind her actually ended up going viral because I think it crystallized so much of where we are right now in this moment, where absolutely it's a time where solidarity is needed. Absolutely we need to show up and show up, especially looking at how thin-skinned our current president is. It It bothered the hell out of him that there were more people marching the day after his inauguration for women's rights then in total showed up for his you know, signing in ceremony and all of that. So that's absolutely something we need to keep going with. But what's the point if our march doesn't have a backbone, if it doesn't have substance? And I think people really um, missed the fact that, that the platform for the Women's March was really really woke it was very intersectional it was very specific and there were bumps along the way I'm not saying it was perfect but it talks about the need to center women of color it talks about the need to pursue reproductive justice it doesn't tiptoe around these different issues that we have it talks about the need to you know to fight against Muslim ban and xenophobia and to um, center the needs of undocumented people and you know families and communities and all of that and so all of that was very deliberate and I think we can't gloss over that now I I have a lot of friends who are women of color who went to the march and they had negative experiences. And I don't think we should gloss over that either. You know, 53% of white women voted for Trump. One can make the argument that were that number even slightly lower, we'd be looking at a drastically different election outcome. And that's not to say that we need to put more burden on women as opposed to all the other populations that put this person into office. But it is to say that there's still a lack of awareness and a lack of solidarity across you know, racial lines when it comes to gender. And so that's kind of what I was trying to look at. And the New York Times isn't exactly the place where you can have a really nuanced conversation about race. So of course, you have to boil some of this down. Um, But that's what I was really trying to look at, just an honest conversation to say, you might feel it's divisive for us to name the issue of race in the context of gender but that divisiveness is actually what we need to really hone in on why that makes you anxious what what feeling you have about that because me as a woman I don't wake up just as a woman every day I don't wake up just as a black person every day I wake up as a black woman every day and so my that's what my feminism is going to be based around and we're not going to be able to move forward unless we acknowledge that reality. It's not, I'm not calling you a racist. People really have an issue with that. I'm not calling you a racist, I promise. You, you probably... <laughs> you might be. Might be. <laughs> you, you might be, especially if you're giving me issues about this, but that's not my primary intention, to name that and put that on you. My intention is to name my own lived reality and that of actually, you know, other women of color. Mm-hmm. So... That's just how I feel.
0: Yeah, and what you're talking about too is intersectionality, right? And I think, um, and so intersectionality being a term coined by Kimberly Crenshaw. um, And so I feel like that's where a lot of people are unaware of this term and this idea. And that's why for me, I focus so much on reproductive justice um, and that being a movement formed by women of color. Um, I I agree. I think like people are really missing out on the idea that no, I cannot separate my identities so that we can focus on one just being a woman like no you wake up with all of your identities I am a Latin, Latina woman and that's what I hold with me um, and so I think that in order for us to move and to progress within this movement we really need to like live in intersectionality um, and I agree I you know in a class of mine someone said um, identity politics can be very divisive and that pissed me off Mm -hmm. i was like like what what the fuck do you mean you know like why is it divisive like why just because you don't agree with it or you don't understand it all of a sudden like you're othering people and Mm -hmm. you're not a part of this so you cannot be a part of the same movement um you really need to understand that in order for us to gain any kind of liberation or to be liberated and for everyone to um achieve equality we must center like Black women, um, trans women, trans people, gender nonconforming people as well.
2: Yeah, the great irony of that, of, of saying something like that, whoever was in your class, mm-hmm. is that the point of identity politics was to be inclusive. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's like the objective of even speaking about these differences, which ultimately link us together, you know, mm-hmm. so. And I also yeah. love, you know, people use identity as a stand-in for race
3: right. or gender, mm-hmm. but yeah you know white men also have an identity it's also an identity to talk about that so it's not like if you don't focus on identity politics you know you're you're not focusing on on white people all of a sudden like that's just not how it works mm-hmm. so i think it's just it's just lazy language in my opinion yeah
1: <laughs> but it's like totally just disguising it's just in- the power it's configurations, just in- you know yeah. like yeah because, yeah, white supremacy is very much a very strong identity politics. Yeah. In fact, it's the strongest identity politics we have going on in this country right now. So, yeah. Have you all been to... Are, are marches a part of your political practice? Like, what what do you all get out of going to marches, if it's something that you all do? it's a great
3: question.
0: Well, I mean, for me, um, I mean, I'm... I'm into it. I think that it's great. Um, however, I think for me, I kind of like to strategize and, like, sit and and talk about what I'm going to do next, like, the planning. I don't know why I'm, like, a planning nerd. Um, but, so I haven't, like, involved myself too much in marches and rallies, but, yeah.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, um, my girl Jamila Lemieux wrote a piece before this most recent Women's March about why she wasn't, you know, excited to march as a black woman. And I think she laid out a very compelling case. I completely respect that. And I know a lot of women of color or just people from different identities, um, trans people who just didn't connect to the march. There were a lot of really transphobic and cis-centered mm-hmm. signs at the march, for example, that would make somebody feel unwelcome. I was um, an or- a co-organizer of the New York Slut Walk in 2015. And... There, there were a lot of complicated racial politics around that march where I felt, on the one hand, I was, I, you know, I wrote about my ambivalence then. On the one hand, I was very excited to see people coming together around, you know, to push back against the idea of, like, you know, shaming and shaming people for their sexualities and to reclaim that word. On the other hand, I understood why people felt that, um, you know, that wasn't a word that black women had the power to reclaim or that that word didn't even apply to black women. They were called other words or whatever. So I think you have to give people room to experience these issues the way that they want to. And then, you know, one thing that was really interesting about that is I ended up consulting on the Amber Rose Slot Walk the, next, the following year in L.A. And just the fact, and, you know, I struggled with the New York Slot Walk. Like, I struggled with it. Like, I really was of two minds about it, but it was kind of the only thing available to me at the time. And then the minute that there was a slut walk that was organized by a woman of color. Like, I felt the difference, you know? And it was the exact same event, like, in the sense that it was called the same thing and it was, you know, about the same issues. But it just was an entirely different dynamic because it came from her lived experience as a as a sex former sex worker, someone who had been in the public eye, who had been slut-shamed and, you know, dating, like, a, a man like Kanye West, you know, and, and all the complications that that brings. So, you know, I think... Talking about identity politics, sometimes it it does just matter who's at the center, who's at the face of something. And I don't think we have to be ashamed to talk about that and name that. Um, you know, I think in a lot of ways we've gotten so used to being uh, put at the margins that... Um, and to, so used to being kind of excluded from leadership roles in the movement that any little, you know, they call it, you know, giving a cookie, like any little crumb that we can get, we, we give a cookie for, we get really excited about it, or we want to rush towards it. And sometimes that's the only option we have. But, you know, when you do have the opportunity to have a full on event that's led by women of color, like, you know, the Women's March was led by like Linda Sarsour and, you know, all these amazing people. Um, I think it really, really makes a big difference and we shouldn't be ashamed to want more of that and ask for more
2: of that. I mean, building on the idea of rallying and marches, another question that we had wanted to ask you guys was in what, I mean, what are your recommendations or in what ways do you feel like women can contribute, especially to Planned Parenthood? I mean, there's, I I feel like I've heard a lot of my peers saying I want to get involved in like in some way, but I mean, as you said, there's a lot of people especially women who have an interest in in doing something now who potentially like weren't really active before so there's a lot of questions about how that's going to happen so I mean anything from donating to volunteering for specific things to fundraising rallying just whatever you guys would like to kind of like mouth off on we would love to hear.
0: Yeah. Um, so I like I participate with like the Planned Parenthood generation. So that's like young people, like college age students. Um, so definitely, I mean, I know there's like a defenders group now where um, people can um, get together and. Like go and defend Planned Parenthood, um, stand with Planned Parenthood. But um, you know, if you're on a campus that has maybe like a Planned Parenthood Generation chapter or any ties to um, PP Gen, then that those are ways to like raise awareness about Planned Parenthood on your campus. Definitely organizing rallies, um, uh, whether uh, donating if you can, donating your time. Um, Personally, like, that's more what I do. I donate my time and, like, I I, um, organize on campus. However, um, I know those resources are not always available to people, but simply, like, being vocal about it, calling your elected officials, writing letters, um, even tweeting about it. We're big on Twitter. Like, yeah. I second that 100 percent, I think, um, the landscape
3: right now can feel really bleak because of who we have in, in office right now. But actually, there are a lot of ways that we can still win. And we know that the majority of Americans are behind us. They don't want to see Planned Parenthood defunded. They want to see abortion remain safe and legal in this country. Um, so that's something for our, on our side. And Every single day that we're not defunded, that's almost 10,000 people that have access to care every single Mm -hmm. day. So, anything that you can do on a daily basis, think about it like that. Like, that's not a small number. Um, You know, I think a lot of people, if you don't have your own Planned Parenthood story, you know somebody who does, and you know what a huge relief it is to walk into a room, not feel judged feel like you can take care of what you need to take care of Um, it's affordable it's not going to put you back financially like that is a huge burden off your shoulder and multiply that by almost 10,000 every single day I think that's a lot of hope that we can have and we can build on that and I know everyone in my office you know is extremely committed to winning we've already seen them push back um, the date when they could start considering um, the bill that would both repeal the Affordable Care Act and defund Planned Parenthood. So that's almost yeah. another month where we are seeing care. And so I think seeing those um, little wins as you know pieces of hope, it can be really helpful. And um, the other thing that I wanted to say is that um, you, I think sharing your story actually does do a lot. I mean, in addition to everything that you already mentioned, I think, um, There's too much silence. Before this administration, there was too much of a sense of safety. And so we don't even know that one in three women in the United States will have an abortion sometime in her life. Everyone you know has been touched by this issue. There are so many untold stories. And I think we need to embrace that stigma head on because it really is one of the most powerful forms of oppression that holds us back. Um, And I think there's a mantra, at least in my office, I don't know if they have this um, as well on campus, but to say, like, never let a crisis go to waste, that this is actually a rallying point and a time for us to all step up and, you know, jump into action. So that's something that I feel really heartened by.
0: Uh, I completely agree. And I think, like, sharing your story is something that um, is the best and most powerful way of, like, getting people and mod- mobilizing people. Um, like, you start to realize how much you have in common with other people once you start to share your story and right face that stigma head on. Um, because once you can, like diminish that and get rid of that feeling you realize that there's nothing to really fear right Mm -hmm. you're you're fighting for your life you're fighting for the lives of others and this is something that you all have in common and you're unified by this motivation yeah Yeah, I I was I kind of just wanted to maybe touch upon how women can help other women um just like making sure that there are also organizations and movements that are already happening yeah. um, and supporting your friends and supporting people that you see t- like starting things and starting movements um, because that's really important. Um, I know that some pe- sometimes people don't feel supported by their friends and mm-hmm. like just going and asking someone maybe like, what are you up to? Like, let's do this. Like not being afraid to ask people for help. Um, I think those are really simple things that you can do. And personally, I've been working on too is just reaching out to people Um, and also self-care like that's so real Um, personally I love like I enjoy meditating every day Um, that's something that helps keep me sane and like makes me happy but um, especially when we're doing this kind of work we need to um, think of sustainable activism and so please take care of yourselves yeah
2: I mean I feel like that, that that there's a big difference between being well, there's a there's a difference in outlook between being a regular activist who's who looks at things on the micro level, like as you described, thinking about each day as being an individual victory, yeah, and then in order to sustain this kind of long term and like will probably take a while to happen kind of change you have to break it down to like a really small parcel like that because otherwise it seems impossible and and it's that sense of impossibility that makes people just be like fuck this Mm -hmm. i'm not gonna be part of it or like it just seems too far away yeah Yeah. so exactly as you say i mean the first thing that you can do to make to ensure that you're part of it is to make sure that you are well totally agree with that um and one thing I also wanted to
3: share was that um, there are a lot of organizations that you can donate to and support right now. You know, we saw um, when the terrible Muslim ban was enacted, um, the ACLU and many organizations like jumped. W- in to help with um, legal support. And I think there's a lot of fronts and faces of this movement. And I think especially supporting local organizations, even if it's your local affiliate for Planned Parenthood or another local group um, is really important right now too because, yes, Planned Parenthood is in many ways at the center of this national conversation where there's other groups that don't have that same visibility that also are hurting right now or are facing cuts or um just a hostile political landscape. So I think it's really important, you know. um, I I try to recommend that for every dollar you donate to a national organization, you also donate to a local organization if you have the um, funds.
2: Yeah, I mean, I feel like growing up in suburban New Jersey, for example, I mean, there are the, there was a local Planned Parenthood-esque organization in my hometown, which was, like, essential to so many people. For I mean, for, and for things that weren't even specifically sexual health, but just for health in general. And yeah. as, as, like, a teenager, having a place where you could go that wasn't, like, your parents taking you to the doctor right. or something. I mean, even just, like, that sense of safety, which I feel like we've all experienced walking into Planned Parenthood and having it be, you know, even one of the few places in New York where you can just kind of let out a sigh of relief. Like, yeah. it is a space like that. And that's really intangible and I think can be hard to communicate to, you know, people who don't necessarily use a service or, or, you know, men, you know just anything like that. But that is really unique and invaluable.
3: You know, we have data that shows um, that for a lot of low-income women, it's not only that Planned Parenthood is the only place that they can go for reproductive health care. It's actually the only connection that they have to the formal healthcare system whatsoever yeah. so that is going to be that that annual pap smear that's going to be their their physical for the year you know and it's that one chance that they have to sit with a doctor and talk to them about how they're doing so i think like that's something that also gets lost in the conversation is the ways that people come to planned parenthood are you know not the ways that you hear about in the mainstream media at all
2: yeah. i feel like that that side really isn't discussed enough yeah, yeah.
3: Well, thanks so much to both of you. I
1: mean, it's just really heartening to know that both of you are really like out on the front lines doing some incredible work and, you know, bringing every, bringing, helping bring everyone along with you. So thank you for being such an inspiration um, and doing the good work because it's crucial in times like these. So we want to thank both of you, Alani Ferdis and Lori Edelman, so much for joining us today um for your fresh takes on some difficult questions but we really are you know really empowered by your activism and and hope to hope to keep in touch with y'all so as i said we said you know we hope this episode will help you know it's helping me and isabel as well think through our next steps because that's honestly the reason why we we wanted to do this um after like a lot of the tra- that that you know post-election trauma, trying to figure yeah. out how we could use this platform as a way to kind of think through our own next steps. So having the chance to hear both of your wisdom has been really enlightening and exciting and um, you know enriching. So thank you. So to all of our listeners, we also hope that, that you had this experience as well. Um, you know, we knew it was a lot of information, but um, we think that um, hopefully this. Episode could serve as one among many resources out there, Um, you know, whether it be through Planned Parenthood or also through Feministing, which does amazing work as well. Um, So, yeah, feel free to uh, contact us at the Top Rank Podcast, Marcel at TopRankMagazine.com and
2: And Isabelle at (laughs) TopRankMagazine.com. Can
3: I shout out Women Led Media? Yes, yes, please shout Uh, out all the the shout outs. outs. Yeah, all All the the shout outs. outs now go off. Shout out. I want to say shout out to Tony. Shout out to Tony. <laughs> <Hey>.
1: <laughs> Sup, Tony. <laughs> Whoa, what other shout outs? Ilan, you got any shout outs? No. No. All right. All right. Um, Even though you're involved in a million things, yeah. fine. No shout outs. Um, but yeah, thanks to Red Bull Studios. Yeah, shout out to
2: Red Bull and to Top Rank.
1: Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and to everyone's time. Shout out to Hassan, our amazing sound engineer. Thank yes. you, Hassan. A, um, yeah, please be in touch with us for any comments, feedback, ideas for future episodes. That's really kind of key to what we do here is collaborate with our listeners. So yeah, that is all for now. But join us next time for the Top Rank Podcast. Bye guys. Bye. See me in my pants and oh. see me, in my me your heart
0: attack we